Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, church. Um, I'm going to be reading our scripture today, so if y'all want to open up to Matthew 4, verse 12. Sorry. Okay. Um, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness had seen great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria and they brought him back all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Okay, and that's it. (laughs) Do you want me to read the next part? No, No. okay. Well, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Sarah. I gave you a very tough first reading assignment. And not only the pronunciations, but leaving the cliffhanger. Good morning. I hope everybody is doing good. I hope everybody found parking. Uh, It's very generous to do half the parking lot and then park a trailer in the other half of the parking lot while they do the other parking lot. So if you found parking, I think I'm going to get charged 100 bucks over here. That's what the sign told me. So if anybody else parked over there, we'll pool our money. Uh, all right, kids. Uh, do we do have EGC this morning? Yes? All right. So uh, we have Elevate over here, which is first and second grade. And then for third, fourth, and fifth grade is EGC out this way. And you can see our populations declining right before our eyes. All right. Uh, We are back in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, kind of, almost. We are the colon right before the Sermon on the Mount. 
uh, and uh, we're, we're going to kind of work our way back into it. And we're in fall weather now. Happy September. Uh, happy Earth, Wind, and Fire Month. I hope everybody is enjoying this. This has been good, man. I mean, August was terrible, but this is kind of worth it. Uh, all right. I want to start this morning with a word association. All right. I want to I tell you a word, and I want you to notice, take note of your initial response to this word. All right. So, so keep a mental note. I'm going to give you a minute to think about it, uh, and, and then we're going to kind of process through it together. All right. Everybody ready? Here's the word. The word is power. Power. Think about it for a minute. How many people, when you hear this word, how many of you had your initial, your initial and you don't have to, you can raise your hands, you can participate, um, your initial response to this was a negative connotation? Okay. How many people, your initial response to this was a positive connotation? Okay. Uh, how many of you thought I was talking about electricity? <laughs> okay. Some of you may have thought Wilson Contreras. Huh? Or, there you go. Or Deion Sanders. All right. Um, How many of us, okay, let me ask this question. How many of us want power? Come on. Come on. How many of us want power? Like, just enough. I'm not saying all absolute sovereignty. I'm saying, like, a good, healthy amount. Like, I want, you know, I want power. Um, is there anybody that, like, doesn't want power at all? Like you want to lose all self-autonomy? I know that's not true. I know. I know. Your mom's going to talk to you. Um, our culture, we, we have a fascination. I mean, throughout history, right, power has been a huge issue. And our culture has a, seems to have a particular fascination uh, with this concept of, uh, of power lately. Um, if you have power and you use it for your own benefit, right? Are you good or bad? If you have, some of these are rhetorical. I mean, you're, you're welcome to answer, but like, just, just think, think of these. What if you don't have power, but you want it and you want to use it for your own benefit? Good or bad? And yes, I did, I did. I did read, do a little reading about Marxism, and, and actually Marxism in and of itself is, is, is a philosophy. Communism is Marxism applied. I, that, you, I, I just did some reading on this. Uh, so Marxism basically is the working class saying it's not fair that we get such low wages while those who have power. Right? Come up with by Richard Marx. It's Karl Marx. Uh, Richard Marx tried to hold on to the knights. Uh, all right. Um, how do we determine who's good or bad? What if you've earned power? Like, however, wherever, economically, physically, socially, what if you've earned power? Is it yours to wield? 
Who, who gets to put the constraints on it? Who defines it? What if you lose power? Like if you're a parent and your kids get older, you just start to lose power. And if you can only think losing power in the electrical sense, how do you react when we lose power? Those of you on North Saint, in North St. Charles, we used to be over there, like a strong wind and we were out for three days. How many of you are like, oh, I'm so thankful? What if you have power and you stay on the sidelines and don't ever use it? No responsibility whatsoever. You just kind of stay out of everything. How do we measure what's good and bad? We have our culture, and maybe you've never thought about this. I, I don't know if I'm the only one that thinks in these terms, um, but I'm bringing it to you because I want, you, I want it to mess with you. Uh, there's a, a, a Catholic priest, Richard Rohr. Now, uh, if you know him, calm down, all right? Uh, Richard Rohr is a Catholic priest. I'm not, I'm not going to call him a theologian. I would probably call him a philosopher. Uh, he, he has a lot of interesting and good things to say, and then he's got some other things that are weird. And I, So I'm not like advocating go out and buy Richard Rohr, all right? He's got some things that I think are, are good and helpful and provocative, and then he's got some things I'm like, dude, calm down. Uh, but he has this quote. He breaks down power between progressives and conservatives, and I found it very intriguing. All right? I'm going to read this quote to you, and I think we have it up here. Uh, be careful if you elbow somebody next to you about, that's right, yours is coming. All right? Progressives seem unable to call their own consumer lifestyles into question. They cannot see their complicity in the system and thus can't radically critique it. In my experience, progressivism creates suspicious people more than it creates loving people. They begin by asking the question, who has the power here? Rather than, how can I serve here? Progressives seem incapable of being part of a tainted anything. Food, institutions, histories, explanations, groups, churches, and most especially any authority structure at all. American progressivism, in my opinion, has no, this is Richard Rohr in his opinion, has, although I find it compelling, has no practical goal beyond maintaining personal and social freedom. I choose, therefore I am, might be its operational belief system. Ah, but there's more. Hang on. Hang on. If progressives refuse to be part of the dirt of history, conservatives refuse to even see the dirt, at least in their own group. Conservatism's basic sin is a lack of courage, but also a lack of exposure or education. It doesn't even know about the dark side or the other side, the view from the bottom or even the view from the top. It confuses loyalty to systems with loyalty to God. Conservatives, in general, are so enamored with presidents and popes and precedents that there's rarely room for prophecy or honest self-criticism. Anybody else not like that quote? I thought it was pretty condemning, like on both sides. Like to me, depending on the day and the topic, he nailed me. Um, hear me on this. Hear me on this. 
The biggest enemies of Jesus were the ones that were simply towing the company line or the party line. I want you to, I want, my goal, my goal is never to be political. I'm not going to like steer away from it, but my goal is not for you to go, yes, that's the answer. Let's jump in line with this political party. My goal is never to be political. And you may argue and say, oh yeah, it is because you always talk about it. It's not. My goal is to always shake us from the systems that we are bombarded with and feel like as Americans, we have to identify with either one side or the other. That's my goal. My goal is to expose our predispositions to finding the party line and jumping in it and saying, this is the answer, now let's go fight against those people. I want to disturb you in good ways. You're not required to fit into these paradigms. And my constant hope is that we will see over and over again, there is no political or social system that fits the ways of Jesus. I want us to get lost so that we may be found. That's my hope. So today we're going to do a re-intro into the Sermon on the Mount. And what it is exactly that Jesus is ushering in here as we dive headlong into Jesus' most famous words. And, and sometimes I think it's important when we do that to expose the lens that we see the world through. Uh, when Jesus... Uh, with the words that the worlds that we see, the lens that we see uh, Jesus through and his words and really kind of all of life. And in our day, power is a huge lens that we look through for meaning and purpose or the end goal. For some, it's that Christians would have more earthly power. That's the answer, that we would win the culture war. Right? Presidents, precedent, social systems, and and that's, not really, that's really not what Jesus is about here necessarily. Others would say that Jesus, they would define Jesus as simply the anti-establishment voice. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He was simply a revolutionary set out to overthrow unjust systems. And if we're honest, he set out to throw unjust systems as a means to earthly power. And that's not what Jesus is talking about either. What Jesus is up, up to, what we start to see, he's not simply upending the injustice of mankind. What he's doing is he is warring against the principalities and the spiritual realms. He is upending the injustice of the universe, the roots beneath the hearts of man. And so before we jump into chapter 6 next week, outside at the park, uh, and by the way, in two weeks, we'll be back here the 24th, uh, and we're going to have, uh, it, we're, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, but we're also going to have a special day uh, with some people from Love the Lou, uh, which I would highly encourage you to be here for that. And we're going to hear some amazing stories of, uh, of their ministry and what God is doing there. But before we jump back into chapter six next week, I want to do a quick review and remind us of how Jesus enters the scene here in Capernaum and how he gives us a view of power that is literally otherworldly. So let's start in chapter four, verse 12, and we're going to go through these. Now, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth 
he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken about him by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Advent. Uh, and for those dwelling in the, in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Matthew, the words of Jesus that Matthew is writing about, uh, he is writing and telling us that Jesus is actually fulfilling the prophecies made in Isaiah. Matthew is written to who? Anybody remember? Jews. Matthew is written to the Jewish people. Uh, and so he's referencing prophecies that they would be very familiar with. And so to understand Matthew, we ought to understand who he's writing to and what they understood. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, the prophecies are very interesting. You can kind of break it down. I mean, prophets are hard to break down in any kind of category, but there's, there's maybe five overarching categories that you can see uh, in the book of Isaiah. He starts initially, he talks about the judgment that is facing Jerusalem and the people of Israel for ignoring God, for neglecting the poor, for turning to idolatry that we sang about earlier, that God's judgment is coming. But he also, in that, talks about hope. Though they walk in darkness, there will come a great light. So he talks about the judgment of Israel. Then Isaiah goes on to talk about the judgment of all nations, that God is not just going to judge Israel, he's going to judge all nations, all the people of the world. Remember, God did not create Israel as a people against the world. He created his people to be for the sake of the world, so that all the nations would see this is, what, this is who God is. He is embodied within this people. That's, that was why he created Israel. So Isaiah talks about judgment toward Jerusalem, and then he's talking about judgment and hope for all nations. Now, this is important. When Isaiah talks about judgment, it's not over. It's not over, right? If you're a parent, and I, we, we try to not do this, but like sometimes you use threats, right? And the threat only becomes realized if the kid keeps doing what he's not supposed to do. When, when Isaiah refers to judgment for both Israel and for the nations, it's not over. The hope is that turn away from these things. Turn back to God. Trust him. Put your hope in him. That is the hope. Stop neglecting the poor. Stop worshiping idols. And in the middle of the book, Isaiah is going to talk about the ultimate judgment that would come to God's people he predicts the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people. And this part of the story is really fascinating to me. This is fascinating history. Uh, Hezekiah is the king of Israel at this point, the king of Judah, and he is fearful of Assyria. Uh, Assyria is the rising power. And so because he's fearful of Assyria, he makes a treaty with Egypt, and then Assyria gets suspicious of the, of the treaty with Egypt, and Assyria comes and attacks uh, attacks Jerusalem, and in the middle of the night, even though God said, don't make a treaty with Egypt, and if you know the full biblical story, you know the painful irony there, God says, I will protect you. So in the middle of the night, as Jerusalem is being laid siege to, Hezekiah 
humbles himself and repents and pleads to God. You know what God does? He miraculously delivers the city. He defeats the enemy. He does what he said he would do. So Hezekiah, in fearing uh, future attacks, what does he do? Does he trust God and say, all right, maybe I just need to continue on with humility and trust that God will do what he says he did, like he just did? No. No. He says, you know who would protect us? God's public enemy number one, Babylon. We should make a treaty with Babylon. That's a good idea. So he hosts the rulers of Babylon, and to impress them, he shows them the temple like with all their hidden treasures and artifacts. Not a good idea. It doesn't turn out well. A few years later, Babylon's like, you know what we could use right now is some treasure. God's people's hearts are still hardened. Babylon turns against them, comes, conquers them, and takes the people of Israel into captivity, into exile. That's the middle part of Isaiah. The last half of Isaiah is the prophetic voice of kind of like, what now? Is it over? The temple has been destroyed. The people of God have been, uh, have been taken into exile. And this is where the prophet's voice moves from warning to hope and comfort. He gives hope for after exile. And in the last section, he gives voice to a coming king. There will be another king to sit on the throne. There will be another one to come. And this king will not cause his enemies to suffer, but this will be a king who would serve and suffer himself on behalf of his enemies. A king that by suffering And atoning for his enemies will actually turn his enemies into his people. And then this king will usher in a new and everlasting kingdom, a new creation, and not just for Israel, but for all nations. So we're reading Matthew. The eyes of its first intended audience, when Jesus, the people that heard Jesus talk and the people that are reading this, when Jesus walks into Capernaum, following his temptation, the arrest of John the Baptist, John the Baptist being the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of the one who is to come, Jesus says, repent, this kingdom is at hand. And every first reader and every first listener knows exactly what he's saying. Some in hope, some in terror, some probably with a whole lot of curiosity. I'm sorry, what? The word repent here, repent, it means turn. It doesn't mean, it doesn't just mean feel bad, all right? If you've confused repenting with just feeling bad, um, it, it's actually so much more than that. Um, I'm sure it's an element of it, but it's far more than that. To me, the explanation that, that I think that is most compelling to me is change your allegiance. Change your allegiance. The hope of the nations is here. Turn from worshiping lesser kings. Turn from worshiping idols, lesser kingdoms, and worship this king. Turn from political or military or financial or social or religious alliances 
to protect or uphold you or to deliver you or to save you and put your hope and your allegiance in this king and his kingdom. And what we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures is the same true in the New Testament. God is patient. He's gracious. He knows that our hearts are sinful. Our allegiance to lesser kingdoms are pretty strong. And he actually promises to give us a new heart that then we are called to exercise and work out and practice trusting, much like we do with our physical heart. We, we, we practice trusting Jesus in good times and in hard times. But to turn and take our allegiance from other things and give them to this king and his kingdom. Now, uh, in the ancient world, those allegiances were largely in line with it. They're, they're still similar in our day, but, but we started, people started with an outside view. Our God, our people, our nation. They were all kind of one and the same. With the Enlightenment world, our gods are oftentimes with ourselves. Self-reliance, independent, self-glory. Um, and I, I get somewhat frustrated with Christianity when it's molded into self-reliance. Not like, I'm not talking about contributing in a, in a cultural way, but it's, it's aligned with like independence and the goal of Christianity is that I don't need other people. Uh, and, and then you guys, I get all my sins in, arranged in such a way that now Jesus has time to worry about you people. Um, it, it, the call to follow Jesus is a call to incredible dependence, not independence. So following announcement, this announcement that God's kingdom is at hand, it's near, um, and just for clarification, when you think God's kingdom, um, it's not like a region or a movement uh, or a nation or even really a religion. God's kingdom is, it's Jesus. It's the presence of the king. Where the king reigns is his kingdom. So it happens here and amongst his people. So after this announcement, this is Matthew follows up with this. Uh, verse 18, while talking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brothers, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Good play there. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, in the boat with Zebedee, uh, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So right after Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom from Isaiah, it is here, he calls his first disciples to follow him. And I want to reiterate this. We've said this a few times. Jesus did not come to earth just to tell us how to get to heaven when we die. He told us, he came to earth to call us to follow him. Do you know why? Because he is heaven. He is heaven. If you can define heaven without the presence of Jesus, you have not defined heaven. He has called us to follow him. So Jesus calls his first disciples, and it's not the elite, all right? Think about if you were to start a movement or a company who would you try to get your spokesperson to be? Who would you call? What professional athlete or local celebrity would you have promoting your, your new work? Jesus calls fishermen. Think deadliest catch type people. 
when we think in our day about people who represent Christianity, who's, who's the public face of our movement? Like, what, what's your general stereotypical thoughts when you see the billboard uh, with the right, appropriate amount of people and their smiles representing uh, Christianity? Who are the public faces? Of our, just, the top, uh, just off the top of your head, right? Clean cut, good-looking family, all the 2.5 kids are smiling, Right? Or, this is where I'm going to get in trouble. The, 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 the white woman pumpkin spice collection with all the fall colors. Right? Uh, what does the good Christian family look like? And listen, we have these pictures in our house, all right? We have fall colors, and I like pumpkin spice, all right? You put it in anything and I will eat it for a time, for a time, uh, starting September 1st, and then by Thanksgiving you should be done with it except for the pie, and that's where it gets sinful, but uh, <laughs> all right, uh, I'm just, here again, we have these pictures, so I'm not, I'm not trying to judge again, I'm just trying to jar some of our presuppositions. Who do we think of the public face? And I don't think there's anything wrong with these things. Uh, but it's when we think that this is the only or the proper representation of Jesus and his kingdom, I think that's when we may get in trouble. We think, we have a tendency to only think of external appearances. Let's take a look at who Jesus uses as, uses as his proclaimers of this kingdom in scripture. All right? Single teenage girl as, as, uh, as his mother. Awkward, dirty smelling shepherds to bear witness to his birth, and some pagan astronomers. John the Baptist, this guy, right? He lives in the desert, he eats bugs, and he wears a camel hair suit. And I don't think camel hair was like fur back then. Or even if it was, that's awkward, right? A dude wearing fur out in the desert. Um, and then he calls his first disciples. He starts with the fisherman, blue collar at best. He also calls a crooked accountant, a tax collector. And just so you know, tax collectors were like the ultimate enemies of the Jewish people. They were Jews working on behalf of the Roman government and, and manipulating their own people for their own benefit and the benefit of the Roman government. Which, by the way, this particular tax collector is the one writing this account of Jesus' life. And then he works in a political zealot. Political zealots are the guys that are ready to go to war all the time. Simon, we don't know exactly what all happens with him. And then some other guys. The first proclaimers of his resurrection are women whose testimony is not even admissible in court. He does, he does end up calling a religious leader, right? He does get that local celebrity in there, Paul, which it costs him dearly to follow Jesus. To me, this is hopeful. This is hopeful because I often feel condemned and confronted by the shame of a cleaned up version of Christianity. To be able to post my I can do all things coffee mug next to my fountain pen, having just scripted some beautifully handwritten notes in my moleskin journal next to my calfskin Bible, perfectly set for the gram, right? All while inside of me is a complete mess. 
wrestling with imposter syndrome, insecurity, fears, doubts, desperate to believe that Jesus is who he actually said he is. I am immensely impressed with people that have it all together, even people that can fake having it all together. Jesus calls messy, outcast people to follow him, and it's the messy and the outcast and the poor in spirit who would even receive this kingdom as good news. To those who would have it all together, this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is actually a threat to their kingdom that's already well-established. So they will look to use him and manipulate him to serve their kingdom purposes. And it can get tricky because he does call the messy and the outcast, but also Jesus is not simply an enabler that just says, you know what? Hey, you're with me. Just do whatever you want. He does call us to follow him. But he's patient. When you read through the gospel accounts, you see how patient he is with the disciples that are just rumbling, stumbling, bumbling through the entire story. And then he continues on with the church throughout like all of history. You read, the, you, read the, you read the accounts of Paul, none of those churches had it together. They're all filled with messed up people. We've kind of cleaned it up and systematized it, made it like, just do this and don't do this. Listen, I do not believe, I'm going to own this, I do not believe that living this out is wrapped up in how well we do it. It's not, it's not an excuse, but I don't think it's wrapped up in how well we, we do it or have it down. I believe the hope of the gospel is wrapped up in where our dependence dwells. Self-reliance, self-justification, self-righteousness, indifference, or Jesus. After Jesus calls his first disciples, we're going to land this quickly. We're not. All right, they follow him and hear what he says and watch what he does. Verse 23, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is amazing. This is an amazing scene. Now, here's the deal. We're not told if any of these people actually follow Jesus. We see throughout the rest of the Gospels, a lot of them probably didn't. Interestingly enough, I don't think that's supposed to be our concern here. I think our concern is what are the disciples seeing and learning? What are those who are called and following Jesus? What are they seeing? They're seeing the king and his kingdom. Where sickness, pain, affliction, demons, anxiety, oppression, they are not a part of this future kingdom. That's what's being ushered in here by Jesus. Is Jesus like out to prove that he's God here by performing miracles? I don't think so. He does other things where he makes it clear. Do I think he's God? You better believe it. Do I think he's out to prove it right now? No, I think what he's proving is what he's showing his disciples. This is what this future kingdom will look like. This is what 
will one day be. John puts it this way in Revelation, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And these verses right here that we see in Matthew, this is but a taste. This is the appetizer as we await the full main glorious dish. And the disciples here are watching it unfold and they have no idea what they are in for. They're not gonna nail it. I mean, they're fishermen. They're not set up for this life. Nobody said, hey, go to fish for the first 10 years or first 15 years of your career and then I want you to be, and then I want you to go to med school, right? And then I want you to go to rabbinic school and follow. They have, they're not prepared for this. They're just along for the ride. And God's kingdom, this is not a power play. This is not coerced. It's not legislated. It's not influenced by cultural norms or morals. It's not a kingdom of self-achievements or overcome, overcomers. It's not a kingdom of good people versus bad people. This kingdom is for the desperate, the sick, the lowly, the poor in spirit. This is a kingdom for those who are lost enough to be led. And Jesus is going to spend the majority of the first part of his sermon in chapter 5 telling us this. There are a crazy amount of ways for you to avoid needing me as Savior. In the last half of chapter 5, he's going to give us all the religious ways that we avoid needing him. All right, so before I give the assignment for this week, I want to, as we get back into this, what, what's the point? Why have I just spent however long I've spent telling you uh, all this? I don't, if you're middle class, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for being middle class. Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, believe me, for drinking pumpkin lattes or anything like that. I want, I want for me, I want us to be set free from pretending that being a Christian means that we have to pretend that we have it all together for Jesus to love us, for us to represent him well. If you're going to be a Christian, get your game face on. Don't mess up. I am hoping that we can be jarred free enough from our shame and or our pride that God's kingdom interfering with our own pretend kingdoms would actually be good news. That it would shake us and comfort us down to the very core of our beings. The conclusion of these verses is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus fulfilling the words of Isaiah 61. He goes up and seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain Every time in the Old Testament that God appears, he appears on the mountain. So you better believe this is on purpose. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, this is what comes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. 
Jesus starts his rabbinic interpretation of Isaiah 61 with this in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, the desperate, the messed up ones, the ones who don't have it all together, I have good news. You are actually blessed because this kingdom is yours. Here's your practice for this week. I want you to go back in and I want you to read through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, chapter 5 through chapter 7. Take your time. If you, want to, if you want to branch out a little bit, include chapter 4 as the preamble and getting up to it, I think that would be great. If you want to include Isaiah, you get big time bonus points. I think God would actually reward you in eternity for bringing that into play as well. Um, that, don't, yeah, that, I probably shouldn't joke about that. Um, take a slow read. Read it together. Ask questions. Ask questions of your community. Get in your GC and say, what do you think Jesus is talking about here? What do you think this means? Uh, ask questions. Read it together if you have kids, if you have family, if you have a friend. Get together. Uh, if you have coworkers, I, whether they're Christian or not, read it and ask them, what do you think about this? It, make it awkward. It's totally fine. Like, don't ask them, hey, if, if you were to die tonight, ask them, hey, what do you think of these uh, Beatitudes? Um. And this is the question that I want you to, to ask. Why is this good news for me? What makes this good news? What's it calling me away from? What's it calling me toward? But why is this good news? Why should this thrill my soul? All right? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. These are technical things, but they're amazing things. In, in the darkness, when your people were wondering if you were done with them, through the words of Isaiah, the guy that they probably couldn't stand before, you gave hope. I'm not done. In fact, not only am I not done, but I'm going to establish a kingdom that will never fail. And God forbid that we take that and we put it into any political or social component of our day or that we turn it into an us versus them. May we turn it into an us for them. May we rejoice. May we be humble. May we be grateful. May it be the lifting of our head. May it also be the humbling of our, of our hearts. This is glorious. And, and the thing that blows me away, this is not ph philosophy. This is history. You did this in time and history. You didn't tell us to close our eyes and, and believe against all odds. I pray that you would encourage our hearts today and our minds and our souls. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.